the texture of the crust is really, you know, you're formulating it using the right flour, the right kind of water, the right kind of yeast, and so forth. But to really get that artisan chef touch, they're putting it through a, I don't know, a several million dollar oven that they had custom made just for them. Mm. And it's actual stones. The same stone that gets seven, eight, nine hundred degrees, just like it does in a regular wood stone or earth stone oven that you'd see at a uh, California pizza kitchen. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, my guest is Greg Rosante, who is a research chef and product innovator in the food space. Greg, welcome. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Greg, what, you know, to start, why don't you tell our listeners about your personal journey, how you got into the food industry, and, how, and then how you moved into food innovation? Very good. Well, I started in the business because my dad owned a restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky, called Ferg Grisanti Restaurant. And uh, he started that in 1973 after he sold out from his brother uh, and cousin that they had a restaurant since the late 50s. So then it you know, started essentially sweeping floors and cleaning bathrooms and washing dishes uh, and then just worked my way up into the kitchen. And then after about 12 years going through high school, went to the University of Louisville School of Business and then decided to move away from Louisville and go attend Johnson & Wales University uh, probably one of the best decisions I've made, uh, which really just at that point, I just wanted to expand my horizon in the culinary industry. At that point, I had no clue what I wanted to do other than something in the industry. Did I want to uh, be a chef on a cruise ship? Did I want to be a chef in a restaurant? Um, I, I didn't know. So after graduating, came back, worked uh, for Jewish Hospital as a sous chef, big 500-bed uh, acute care hospital, and learned all about the how different diets work and, you know, puree items and things of that nature. And then uh, went from there, and that's, you know, I've had a bunch of, you know, cook and culinary chef jobs in different restaurants. Prior to that, uh, mainly my, my dad's place, but but other places as well. And then when I left Jewish Hospital, I got a job with Winston Industry in Louisville, and they make restaurant equipment primarily. Well, that's the only thing they make is restaurant equipment. So Winston Shelton, who just passed away earlier uh, this year, uh, he developed the pressure fryer for Colonel Sanders. Mm. So that's how that relationship got started. So uh, they they were early uh, developers with, with pressure frying. And then he also, Winston also developed what's called CVAP, uh, control vapor technology, you know, cook and hold ovens and so forth. And I worked there about seven years in the early 90s. Uh, and they really sent me all over the world. I was a chef slash sales. 
so I, I worked with other chefs from all over the U.S. and around to help them optimize the use of this quote-unquote new technology. Uh, people know it now as, as a combination ovens, you know, combi ovens and so forth. But Winston was like the early, early person in on that and really developed the technology. So... That's kind of how I got started, and then I went from there. I was recruited away to um, Panera Bread, and that was my first sort of job in the multi-unit space. And I started with Panera when they had 62 units. Uh, developed their panini program and redid their salad program. Re- rewrote a lot of formulations on their soups. And from there, you know, went to uh, Man Flavors in Cincinnati, one of the top 10 flavor companies in the world, uh, and really got into the molecular side of, of the flavoring seasoning industry and uh, love that. And then, you know, a few other positions around. I've worked with companies developing meat products with, you know, Pierre Foods and then Landed at uh, Frisch's Restaurants uh, in 2010, and was there until they sold. Uh, you know, I, I left there in in uh, 2017. So that's kind of my journey and where it started. And I guess you would say the transition point was between being a chef to going to Winston. Uh, and essentially getting into that sales, chef, culinary, traveling mode. And that's that's what I've done a lot of. So you were there in the really early days of Panera when they only had 62 units, as you said. What was, 60. What was it like in those days? <laughs> it was tight. And the only thing, the only way I can describe it, it was, it was, it had to have been the same atmosphere as like a Google or a Facebook when they just started. It was a ragtag, small office. I mean, you'd be shocked to, know, to, to, to see how small their offices were in, in, um, in St. Louis. It was like in a strip mall. And they had no test kitchen. I had to uh, claim like a restaurant that I would go into when I did product development and had to work with equipment. Um, what'd you just go into, was, you, it, you went into one of your buddy's restaurants and used that to do product development for Panera? No, I, I went to one of the Panera units. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. That, that they sort of unofficially designated as, as one of the test units. So I had a chalkboard. I could literally create a new soup, salad, sandwich, whatever, put it on the chalkboard and sell it for a few days and just to see how it went. And that's, that that really is how informal that place was. And it was, people were tight. They were, you know, it was a young group. I was only, I was essentially their first real corporate chef. They had a, they had a guy before me, uh, but he came out of a restaurant. Uh, he wasn't really a developer. He didn't, he wasn't the formulator. Uh, not saying anything good or bad or indifferent. You know, a lot of these companies, you know, their first foray into a corporate chef is just to yank a guy out of a restaurant. 
and there's a whole lot more to it than than going from the restaurant business into product development because you know that transition for me was six, seven, eight years of learning how to formulate products, how to use um, functional ingredients, flavors, starches, uh, gums, you know, and, and then how, and then later in my career, how to create things uh, from a natural perspective. How do I, you know, when I went to Frisch's, for instance, uh, one of the directors was, hey, let's get all this artificial preservative out of all our soups and everything. Uh, and they also did a, a trans fat. They, they got rid of all the trans fats. So those are, those are examples of you have to know what you're doing from a formulation standpoint because when, when a chef just makes three, four, five gallons of soup or sauce or whatever, uh, you make it, you consume it, and it's gone. When I write a formula for a soup, it's for 1,500 pounds, and that has to be packaged, frozen, delivered to a store, um, thawed and heated, and then it has to hold on a line for a period of time before it's sold. So there's a whole lot more to it than than what a quote-unquote chef out of a restaurant would do. Um, they just don't have the, the bandwidth of all the knowledge for the the, the uh, functional ingredients that are used and mm. flavors and what flavors are, are going to last and, you know, and so forth. So. Mm-hmm. so going back early in your career, you were one of the original members of the Research Chefs Association. So what w- how, how is RCA's mission changed over time? And where do you see RCA today adding the most value to the business? Wow, that, that, you know, that's a fantastic question. Um, being one of the first 22 people in the room that developed the organization, it really came out of, we got stiff from the ACF at a conference. Um, Pops, Hani, God rest his soul, he wanted to, to get the ACF to say, can we have a, can we have a, uh, a breakout session for like these men and women that are in the product development space? And they essentially said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And they didn't do it. So then Pops came back and the next conference was NRA in Chicago. And that's when he gathered up a group of people and we said, look, we need something for the product developers. And I was at Winston at that point. So, and that's kind of how it all started. Again, it was very, I would say, informal. Um, we formed a board of directors. Uh, I served on the first board. And we just went from there. It was literally kind of a, kind of how you would imagine it to be uh, in the early days. We didn't have a budget. I think our first conference, in fact, I remember our first conference, uh, we... we, we uh, Tag teamed with a uh, it's called the Society for the Advancement of Food Service Research (SAFSR), and we tag teamed with them. And I think we had 175 people at the very first conference, and we thought we were, man, we thought this is the greatest thing in the world. We got so many people, hmm. and uh, that was in Cleveland. 
and and now we routinely, you know, we have over two thousand members and and have you know a fairly large conference. And I think the biggest thing is we've expanded our footprint. We've gone from just this little. It was like manufacturing chefs and some corporate chefs. But now we have students. We have an entire mentorship program. We are really thinking about the future. And I'll be honest, my opinion is I think they've gotten a little, a lot more technical. They've really embraced the, the science side of it. And, again, I'm not making a judgment here, but there's a contingent of chefs that are product developers. And then there's a contingent of scientists that are culinary oriented. Let's put it that way. They're, they're trained as scientists, but they have a little bit of culinary knowledge. And like me, I'm a culinarian that has some science knowledge. So between those two, the the middle shall meet. And I think they've kind of, as the, as the RCA has grown and gotten bigger and better and, we, we've just expanded our reach. I think we've kind of put our arms around a whole lot of, of um, R&D scientist type people that would ordinarily gravitate to the IFT. I think they're kind of saying, well, we need to, we need to have a culinary focus for our organization and we need to kind of gravitate toward the RCA. Now, both organizations are really good and they, they both serve their purpose, but I would just say, in general, the footprint has gotten bigger, and we've been we've gotten more inclusive. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So you've you've your career has, has gone back and forth between the restaurant side of the business and the consumer packaged goods side uh, side of the business. Working it has with, working with companies like Little Lady and Jr. Simplot and Kettle Cuisine. Mm-hmm. What what do you view as the unique challenges or the or the differentiated challenges on uh, on, on both sides? Uh, wow, uh, the the challenge is always how can any of those companies, you know, Little Lady Foods, they're in the pizza space. Uh, how can they create a pizza that is more and more and more? Uh, like a true uh, takeout pizza or a true artisan pizza. I think they've done a great job in really the last 10 years with technology. If you look at, like, I'm not saying anything proprietary, but Little Lady Foods, private, uh, they they do a lot of co-packing for a lot of companies, and one of which is a giant grocery chain out of Cincinnati. So they have a line called Private Selection beautifully packaged artisan look and they just do fabulous pizzas for them and what the lady did was they invested in this monstrous oven that literally has uh it's a it's a it's a pass-through oven it's on a chain but on the chain they have actual stones that are eight inches wide by, you know, 42 inches, the width of the oven and it's gas fire. So those stones actually, when they go in the oven, they get hot. So the pizza crust goes on top of this stone. That's when they say a stone fired oven. Well, it passes through this big industrial oven and it truly is like what you would get out of a, uh, 
one of those round stone fired ovens like uh earth stone or wood stone that you would see in a um high-end pizza place okay the, the texture, so that's an of, texture of the crust exactly and and the texture of the crust is really, you know, you're formulating it using the right flour, the right kind of water, the right kind of yeast, and so forth. But to really get that artisan chef touch, they're putting it through a, I don't know, if it, a several million dollar oven that they had custom made just for them. Mm. And it's actual stones, the same stone that gets seven, eight, nine hundred degrees, just like it does in a regular wood stone or earth stone oven that you'd see at a uh, California pizza kitchen. And and that's another one. You know, they make those pizzas too for the frozen market. Mm-hmm. So they're able to make a CPK pizza just like, you know, very similar to what you'd get in the, in the unit, except it's a frozen product. So that's, those are just some small examples of how companies are, are meeting the challenge, trying to either develop some equipment that actually translates to a technique, uh, yeah, stone fire. It, it, you just can't get that from a regular industrial oven that just goes through on a, on a stainless steel belt. It's, it's not going to, yeah. It's an interesting story of learning from the restaurant business and applying it to CPG at scale. Uh, of course, exact big investment. And that's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. So if you if you look at you back at your career, Greg, what are some of the successes you're most proud of and projects you personally worked on? Wow. Well, I, I'd have to start with the the whole Panini uh, project at Panera from beginning to end. When I was hired, they had no hot sandwiches. And they brought me in. They said, Greg, the first thing we want to do is we want a hot sandwich. And they did. They had no clue what that looked like. They just wanted a hot sandwich. Mm. So the first thing I did was take a few months. You know, my boss and myself, we went to uh, Chicago. We flew up to Chicago. We went to New York. We went to Atlanta. We went to uh, Miami. And we went out of Washington, D.C. So we took this road trip. And really, this was, you know, you got to understand the time frame. This was 1998. Panini, people in the U.S. didn't really know what a panini was, much less there were any restaurants serving them. There may have been a few, you know, like I say, in D.C., Chicago, there were restaurants, one-off restaurants that were selling. But I had to figure out, how, okay, how are we going to take this from an artisan perspective, create really good bread? And I had a fabulous bread guy, Mike Marino. He's awesome. I mean, he created like the best focaccia bread. And so whatever I needed, that's what he would create. And then it's just a real simple formula. It's, you know, high quality meat, a little bit of sauce, some glue, cheese, maybe some fresh herbs. Like that chicken, uh, it was originally called the chicken Frontera sandwich. Uh, I think they call it the Frontega now. But so that is one thing from beginning to end. And it took about a ooh, nine months from inception to rollout. And it wasn't just, okay, we're just going to produce the sandwich. It involved getting 
equipment in. We all, had to get a all, panini press. All new equipment, right? You didn't have any of that. In exactly. The exactly. It was a, it's, I would recall it was about a $21,000 package for each restaurant at that point. And by that time, we were at about 280 stores. It went from 60, you know, it, I mean, they were growing five, six a week and they were opening up. So, um, I flew out to the manufacturer of the Panini Press, and I said, can you make these changes so it's a little easier on our people? Like, I wanted to label one, two, three, and four. I wanted to, to go from a from just a bimetal thermostat to a an electronic thermostat, which would hold those temperatures within one degree plus or minus, whereas a bimetal it's kind of a 20 or 30 degree swing, you know, it was a much less, and that added a little bit of cost to the equipment, but, but the company was so willing to work with us because they knew, man, this company's growing. We're going to sell a lot of these Panini prizes. Let's make, and they made every single change that I asked for without, and, and having experience from Winston in that equipment space really helped with the knowledge of me saying, can I get these changes? This is exactly what I want. And these are the reasons why I want them. And man, they agreed to every one of them. And it didn't really increase the cost of the machine any, uh, a little bit, but not much. And it really made it a much more effective rollout. And you know, that was one big example. Uh, I think another quick example was, uh, when I went to Frisch's, you know, they wanted to take, uh, a more natural approach to all their cream-based soups. And what they were doing before was, you know, they had a cream base, literally a, a powdered cream base. They would mix it with water, and then they would make, you know, different types of soups with it, you know, potato soup, corn chowder, you know, clam chowder, and so forth. The CEO came to me and he said, Greg, can we, can we really make this with, like, milk and cream like like at my country club and i'm like well sure you can it's going to be a whole lot more expensive and i have to i have to put a little bit of um some functional ingredients in it so it doesn't break but absolutely it can happen so i partnered with uh one of my vendors that uh introduced me to culinary cream and which is a real product and it's fabulous from nestle i work with the chef and George and I are very good friends. We worked together. I actually went up to Solon and spent about four days with them in their culinary kitchens, banging out a whole bunch of prototypes that I then took back to the office and got approved with just very minor tweaking. And then um, they, they entered the system. And the interesting thing about that whole process was the price of the soup went up, I would say about 25 to 30%, depending on which one it was. So it was not a price decrease at all. It was a huge price increase. But what we learned was, Frisch's model is, they have this all-you-can-eat buffet, salad, soup, etc. And what we learned was, the satisfaction numbers went way up. But the actual soup usage in the restaurant went down. And we thought we were... Why, why did that happen? Well, when we looked into the data, people were becoming 
satiated or satisfied with one or one and a half bowls of soup, and they weren't eating three and four bowls of the kind of the watered-down cream soups. So they were eating less because they were getting full on the real cream. They were more satisfied because obviously they were like, this is, you know, the, the general consensus was this is much better soup. Uh, so the price really, although they were the stores were paying more per case, it really was a wash mm. because they actually served less of it. They were essentially giving it away on a buffet. But their ratings from the satisfaction of the consumer went up. And that's a win all the way around. And that's something that most people just don't think of. They're like, well, we need to cut the cost. We can't afford it. Nobody goes to a restaurant to have a cheap experience, and nobody goes to a restaurant to have a bad experience. Quality over they go quantity. To have a good experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't go to a restaurant saying, "Well, I'm going to eat four bowls of soup." <laughs> I go to a restaurant and say, "I want a really delicious bowl of soup." Those are and that's what I'm going to be happy with. Th- those are some great success stories. Any any uh, yeah. any any stories of failure where product development went awry <laughs> that you want to share with oh, our audience? <laughs> for every success, I got 10 failures mm. for you. <laughs> one, one of them is a really neat product. It's, it was, uh, it's Chris's again. And, uh, the, the CEO was real hot. It, there was this little restaurant in Cincinnati that did what's called, uh, oh gosh, hay rag, something potatoes, the rag potatoes. And they essentially haystacks. So they, they took a fresh potato in this restaurant. They shredded it up, put it in a fryer. So essentially, it's like kind of loose fried hash browns is the best way to put it. They put them on a plate, and then they top them with, you know, different, you know, gravy, white gravy, brown gravy, different sauces. Uh, and it was like it was really unique appetizer. Well, man, I went through so many iterations. I went through every single frozen potato there was but the funny thing was that the end up the solution was go ahead and get a, a roboku and and run it through and and that shred your own potatoes but the key was i had to soak those things for about three hours in ice cold water and then drain them and not just drain them i had to buy a salad spinner a big one put it through a salad spinner and really dry those potatoes out then you had to put them in the fryer and double nest them. And it was just a, it was a process. And it was about four months of working on this thing. We finally figured it out, solved it. And it actually was a really successful product, but the failure, it was failure upon failure upon failure. And I just kept at it because the Craig, the CEO really was hot on this product. It was like his baby. It's like he found it. And I wasn't going to let him down. I was going to figure it out until it happened. And, uh, you know, the stores, they already had the RoboCoos. They had to buy salad spinners. And, you know, so the store, the, the investment was minimal. And they were using fresh potatoes, which are dirt cheap, so to speak. Uh, but we made it work. Um, but, my goodness, there's all kinds of, of uh, failures where you just, you just try things and then you just get to a point where it's like, this just isn't going to work. And, and that's 
that's when you have a experienced uh, culinarian who's a who's a a good R and D person that knows when to fold them and say, you know what, it's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. And the other side of that is to know when to stick with it. In the case of those haystacks, keep at it, keep at it, and not give up until you figure it out. Uh, so, man, <laughs> there's so many <laughs> failures. I I uh, I could go on about what we've tried and failed at. Uh, but anyway. If you if you were to look at the broad consumer packaged goods industry, there there mm-hmm. was there was a study done recently that over a four year period, from new product introduction, if you go back and track new products, only one out of four were still on the shelf after four years. The other three were essentially failures. And you know, yeah. based on all your experience, you know, is are there any words of wisdom you can give to CPG companies on how to how to decrease that a bit, the failure rate? Well, you know, I would I would say look at it from a different perspective. There is no quote unquote failure that what that you did either learn something from. There is there are no pure failures, in my opinion. And by that I mean a pure failure was you tried something and it, and it literally crashed your company. Uh, that's a pure failure. I, I just don't see those out there. I see companies trying to do different stuff, and and I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, um, oh, what's the? Oh, it's a cookie cup. Um, oh gosh, I want to say the Oreo. The Oreo is like the most, you know, the most popular cookie since its inception. Lately, they've gotten into so many different flavors they it's kind of like you look on the shelf and they have literally 15 different slots for the oreo cookie mm-hmm. the thins the six the double stuff the this the the different flavors the, the the white and black the the cinnamon the mint the banana it's like okay don't lose your focus because what got you there was making a really successful product um and, and i don't look at that as a failure they're just you know, they're looking at things from a different perspective, trying to trying to do something a little bit different to to um, short, you know, to, just to gain more market share. Um, I guess my what I'm trying to say is, companies don't be afraid to try something new, but know when to know when to to um, say enough, mm-hmm. know when to pull it, know when to. Uh, kind of throw your hands up and say, all right, this didn't work, move on. Mm-hmm. The chip, Frito-Lay, is like, oh my gosh, they're a perfect example. I mean, they're putting out some flavors that people just, I mean, I've looked at it and said, I never thought they would do that. And, th- and there's one that I just absolutely love. It's like a horseradish beef chip, and it's fabulous. <laughs> I just, I love it. You know, it's got a, it's, it's like eating a steak with horseradish on it. It's like mm-hmm. eating a prime rib with horseradish. So don't be afraid to try things, but just kind of know when, if it gets too funky, okay, time to pull back, you know. And and food service comes to do the same thing. I mean, look at KFC. I kind of looked at it and said, oh, boy, they've lost their way. But really, a lot of those introductions have been pretty successful. Those things that I thought were weird, that, you know, the, the chicken with two pieces of chicken as a sandwich, 
and I forget the latest one, but, uh, you know, they're doing all kinds of new stuff. They're, they're trying to just really go out on a limb. Uh, just be cautious not to go too far out on a limb, but doggone it, you gotta, you can't be so afraid that you don't, you do any innovating, you know, but you learn from everything, everything you do, you learn from. Well, put that, that that example kind of leads us into this uh, ongoing discussion of you know what's a fad versus what's a trend, uh, which is another exactly. big challenge in the food industry. And yeah. so, you know how how do you how, how do you recommend people keep up with that and and know when uh, hey this is just a fad. It's not going to last very long. This mm-hmm. is going to be one of our failures. This is going to be something that's not on the shelf versus. This is a trend, and, uh, you know, Panini, I mean, that's lasted all these years at Panera or, uh, or other example. It. Yeah, so uh, what's your advice to folks on dealing with fads versus trends who are in the food industry? Okay, here's a couple of delineations. Fads are things like, oh, we're going to all eat low fat. Uh, we're going to all... Uh, do the keto diet. We're going to do the low carb diet. We're going to do those type of things to me, just scream fads. Things that are trends are a little more subdued. And and the perfect example for that is like the gluten-free. Well, if you really do some research on gluten-free, you would figure out that, you know, 50 years ago, there weren't people that were celiac. I mean, there were, but they weren't very prominent. Today, my goodness, the 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 allergens, the people are allergic to the gliatin, the, the the gluten that's in the flour. That is something that is real. That's not just people saying, "Well, I don't want to eat gluten." Some people are like that. They want to. They want to reduce the uh, inflammation in their body, so they shy away from gluten. The real people that are sensitive to it, my wife is one of them. She just can't eat gluten. So that's a trend that is not going away because it's based on something that's real. Okay. Um, the, the trend toward less meat and more plant-based products, in my opinion, that's real. People are kind of stepping back, looking at the environment and saying, I don't want to quit eating meat, but I'm going to eat just a little bit less of it and maybe substitute a meal or two with something that's Mm plant-based. And then you have companies like Impossible Burger, Beyond Meat, Dr. Prager. They're coming out with some really unique, innovative products that, again, this is my opinion, I don't think are going to go away. I mean, these are solid products that people are buying and they're not going to go away. Like, you know, the low fat thing was, was kind of based on junk science, so to speak. The, uh, those type of things to me, scream fad, low carb, low carb, we don't eat any carbs. Okay. That's great for six months. And then what are you going to do? You know, you're going to eat a piece of bread every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So the, so that's, kind of what I, the way I delineate a fad from a, and here's another one in the, in the 
food business, I mean, sorry, the restaurant business, fresh ingredients prepared quickly right in front of you. Does that describe anything? Well, it describes Chipotle, Blaze Pizza, Mod Pizza, uh, Carito out of Cincinnati. They do uh, Indian-type food and uh, Italian-type food. Uh, what's that other one? Piata Street Food. Those are fresh, wholesome ingredients prepared right in front of you very quickly. Those types of restaurants, I think, are going to proliferate. They, they aren't going anywhere. Because somebody can go in and for 10 bucks get a fresh, hot meal prepared right in front of you, and it's good food. You know, it's not like going to a steakhouse where you got to invest two hours of your day and 50 to 80 bucks of your money. Um, these are things where you go in and get a quick, good bite, a burrito, a pizza, or something, and those aren't going away. So that's another one that's a that's a trend that's not a fad. Mm -hmm. So when you innovate, if you look back across your career, when you've innovated, how has food science and technology in areas like flavor science and chemistry, mm -hmm. how's that come into play for you? And what, you know, what, what, what have you learned and grown in your career in those areas? Wow. Just, you know, really just working for a flavor company has opened my eyes to, uh, I'll give you a few quick examples, things like uh, sensation flavors. And, you know, when you think of flavors, you think, okay, uh, salt, sweet, sour, bitter. Uh, and then beyond that, you're like, okay, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. You know, they, those are just flavors, citrus, lemon, orange, those type of things. Beyond that is another layer of these sensate flavors that that give you a tingling sensation they it's not a flavor per se but it's a tingling sensation or a uh, you know remember the pop rocks back in the 70s hmm. that's a that's a physical sensation in your mouth and they just coated them with different flavors but there's all kinds of of technologies that are that are just unbelievable the encapsulation technologies, not just the not just the molecular, like the beta cyclodextrin where you have a molecule that surrounds a, a garlic molecule and and it only reveals itself when it is wet, you know. Um, like when you put that dry into a powder in powder into a mix, it, then it reveals itself. But then you have physical encapsulation. Uh, where you take a liquid, surround it with a capsule, and these beads, so to speak, can be very tiny, down to a half a millimeter, up to several millimeters, six, eight millimeters. But they have a liquid-flavored core, and then a uh, substrate that holds it in that, that is not flavored at all. So you, you'd see these in bubble gum and, and cake mixes where... They reveal themselves after they've reached a certain temperature and that outer shell has melted away to reveal the beautiful lemon flavor of the inside. But if you just put a lemon flavor in a batter, it would flash off the first 10 minutes in the oven. But if you put a capsule, then it doesn't reveal itself until it's almost all the way baked. So those are kind of technologies that are that my eyes were wide open when I 
worked with the flavor company as a chef. It's like kid in a candy store. Wow. You mean I can take this lime lemon flavor and put it in a batter and it really won't reveal itself until it almost comes out of the oven. Then you get this incredible aroma, you know, encapsulated cinnamon. It's just amazing. You do all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, newlyweds foods out of Chicago do they do fantastic things with breading systems and the way they can put different flavors into a breading system to where when it hits the fryer then it reveals itself so those are all really unique technologies that you know there's a lot of flavor companies out there that are really embracing uh, the technology part of that flavor Mm. So a lot of tools available to R and D folks in the food industry. What do you what do you what do you think some of the toughest common challenges are for professionals who are in the R and D side of food? Wow, uh, really? Uh, it's that involves the the toughest challenge is literally having time to go around the world and taste what is authentic because as the world shrinks with, with people being able to jump on a plane and fly to Europe for $800 and $600 and you catch a sale for three ninety five, people know what the authentic flavors of Spain, Morocco, uh, you know, uh, Asia, Mexico. So they have a taste for what is truly authentic. The challenge is how do package companies and how do chefs and, and food scientists work together to take and take an authentic food, maintain its authenticity, and then deliver it to the consumer. Uh, more and more consumers are wanting convenience. They want to get their food delivered to their house. My goodness, grocery delivery is just exploding. And I thought, wow, why don't you just go to the grocery store and pick up your stuff? Well, a lot of people, it's it's easier just to get on the computer, type in what you need, and then drive your car up, and they put it in your in your car, and you go. So, what can those package companies deliver that is still authentic? And you got to go back to that example with Little Lady Foods. They they literally invented an oven. They they took an oven and they either they modified it or had it built to create this stone fired authentic experience. So when you get one of those pizzas, uh, they're pretty doggone good. I mean, uh, they're way better than your typical frozen pizza that you would have gotten three, four, five years ago. Yep. So and, the, so, and, the, so the common theme I'm, I'm, I'm sensing Greg, your bias and your common theme is quality <laughs> and authentic. Yeah. And, and that's, th- those are things that you're giving advice to people on. Absolutely. And that came, that's a bedrock value that my dad gave to me. You know, Ferd, God rest his soul, he passed in 93, but he, when, when he, he would cut veal, he would get a leg of veal downtown and he'd bring it out there and he'd cut it. And I learned how to cut veal, but he would fry it. You know, he bread it, fry it for veal Parmesan. He fried it in pure olive oil, 100% olive oil. And, and my brother, you know, my oldest brother, I'm the youngest, 
it's like, man, Dad, why don't we why don't we use an olive oil blend? And you're just frying with it, you know. And and he's like, no, he he just wouldn't bend on quality. And that's one of the common. That's one of the things that I bring to wherever I work. If you want a chef, if you want a developer to cut cost and try to cut cost out of a system, I'm not interested. I'm interested in working for companies that want to keep quality high. You know, when I went to Frisch's, that was what attracted me there was you know, Craig was second generation. His dad founded the company was with Dave Frisch, Jack Meyer. And his thing was, Greg, people don't go to a restaurant to have to save a nickel. They don't. And Frisch's was a low cost, you know, four ninety nine, five ninety nine breakfast and a four dollar big boy, you know. They weren't expensive. But the quality, he never argued about quality. He always wanted me and that was what attracted me because that's my natural my natural uh, outlook is quality first. Now how can we take that quality and translate it either to a package product or to the 150 chefs that you have in your system that typically are 18 to 24 year old kids running the line and, and you have to figure out how they can do it a hundred percent of the time and a hundred, hundred percent execution. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you're not going to have a, you're not going to have a multi-unit very long. So Greg, you've had a long and successful career in the food industry. What, for a young person just starting their career, what advice would you give to them? And I tell you, uh, get a mentor. Uh, really get with somebody who is older, more experienced, and learn. Ask questions. Do research on your own. My goodness, with the internet, uh, you've got all this access to culture food, ingredients, you know, early in my career, I bought tons of books just about ingredients. I bought books on mushrooms, books on, you know, plants, books on seafood, books on meat, and just, just read that stuff voraciously and familiarize yourself with what is out there. Because typically, you know, as a chef coming up in a restaurant business, your world is that kind of cuisine. Well, ex- what I would say to a young person wanting to get into R and D, really try to expand your your outlook on the world and say, what kind of ingredients do they have in the Middle East? What kind of ingredients do they have in Asia that are kind of funky and different and unique that I can taste and then maybe put in to some of the things that I'm doing and what I'm working on, you know? So, I would just say read, learn, but get a mentor um, and, and really try to ask a lot of questions and learn from them. Mm, good advice. And, and how about companies looking to innovate? If you could just give one piece of advice to companies who are looking for that next killer product that's going to be a home run in the marketplace, what would you tell them? Be patient. Don't be afraid to try something different. And don't be afraid to think out of the out of the box. I know it's such a cliche to say that, but um, if you look at the example of uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, he was never afraid to to spit down and say, "What does the consumer want? Let's 
let's figure that out and then fill the need. So I think companies need to do a, a little bit better job of talking to their customer and saying, what do you really want? Now let's fill that need. Do you really want a great pizza? Do you really want a good, you know, hollandaise sauce? Let's figure out how we can deliver that to you. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Good advice. That's, yeah, that's what I would say. Greg, before we go into wrap up, any other any other words of wisdom that you'd like to give or comments you'd like to give to our listeners? Wow. Um, just it, the world, as I get older, uh, the world is so expansive, and especially the world of food. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing lately is I love YouTube and I love to learn about different industries. Like I'll, I'll look at videos on, on manufacturing, like in the auto industry, there are definite connections with how do they do it in the auto industry? How do they, how do they reach customers? How do they pick the brains of their consumer to build a better car? It's the same in any industry. How does the cruise ship industry try to meet their meet their target audience and satisfy their needs? Uh, so don't just look at the food industry. Look at a lot of different industries and try to figure out how do they connect with consumers. I think as we move forward and we get more, I'm going to say, disconnected with all these personal devices, everybody's got their face in a phone. The, the true uh, currency moving forward is going to be personal connection. How can a company make a personal connection? And if you can do that, you've got a customer for life. You've got loyalty. So that's what I would... I know it's kind of an odd roundabout way, but figure out why people do the things they do. Yeah. Customer for life yeah. and loyalty. It sounds pretty good. Yeah. I want to thank my guest today on the podcast, Greg Grisante, who is a longtime research chef and food product innovator. Greg, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.